Shoulder of Orion is brought to you by the generous support of our incredible patrons. To learn more about joining our Patreon, please visit www.perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jane Prater, and I'm joined by hosts... Patrick. And Dan. And today we're here to discuss... Uh, a book that we've been reading, The Cyberpunk Nexus, Exploring the Blade Runner Universe, with Lou Tambone. And Lou, I don't want to call you like the author, but you're kind of the force behind the book in many ways. So thank you for coming on the show, number one. And uh, yeah, I, I'm excited to talk about uh, this book and uh, your kind of your journey to it. Well, thank you all for uh, having me tonight. This is a really, I, I was saying before, I really appreciate this uh this opportunity to come on and talk about the book. I haven't, we haven't done a lot of press or anything like that. We just sent out some releases, so it's great to get out there and actually have conversations about it and let people know, you know, the process we went through to make it. Awesome. And again, you know, we've been talking with you or talking about coming on the show for a while. We've had a lot on our plate, but it's it's been pretty exciting. There's just been uh, a lot of uh, talk about Blade Runner. I mean, there's uh, a couple other books coming up next year, as far as I know. 2019 is upon us, so all of these things that are happening certainly uh your book being one of them it's just a, it's a great time to be a fan and to really dig deeper which is obviously what we do here on our show um so first question that i would like to kind of ask you um before we get into the book I, i'm just curious like your relationship i mean certainly i've read your your uh, what you had to say in the book but from your own words from your own mouth like what is your relationship with the film and how how did you become a fan I, I believe, because uh, I was thinking about this earlier today, actually, I, I believe it, it stemmed from my uh, love of Star Wars, if you can believe that. Um, I mean, I was still pretty young when the film came out in theaters. It was 1982. I was 12. So uh, Star Wars came out in 77. I was uh, seven. <laughs> so uh, when I when I saw Harrison Ford as Han Solo, it really, I don't know, it spoke to me. And that was a big deal for me as a kid. He was, he was my first big big hero and i followed him throughout the movies he made after after that the empire strikes back and all the you know indiana jones all that kind of stuff and blade runner was part of that little group of movies that was coming out when i feel he was sort of in his um i don't want to say his peak but the the, uh, a certain peak of popularity we'll say and uh i followed the making of the film in Starlog magazine and some other places because back then there was no internet, of course. So I, I just felt really close to that film. So by the time it came out, I was so excited. And then uh, I got to see it in the theaters. And you know, back then, if you didn't have somebody to take you, you, you really saw a movie once and that was kind of it, except Star Wars was a little bit different because you know, I would drag everybody. But something like Blade Runner, you know, my mom wasn't going to want to take me to that twice. <laughs> <laughs> little dark for her um so uh yeah i mean i think that's that's sort of where it came from it just spoke to me it, it came through star wars and, and through uh the other star wars films and then um you know indy and and uh then blade runner and, and ridley scott as well I, I enjoyed his uh films even as a kid you know you can kind of latch on to those things when you're younger they're so fantastical you know Thank you. 
and that was a, a great time in certainly the 80s in terms of the kinds of films that we were getting uh, science fiction films and the, the heroes that we were getting it was it's just a really seminal time in film history like you said for Indiana Jones for Blade Runner I mean we're on the heels of Alien Aliens is about to come out a few years later I mean they're the never-ending story just growing up in that in in that time was really an amazing thing to experience and to kind of have first-hand knowledge of. I'm interested in uh, you talk in your essay about uh, really feeling like Harrison Ford is your hero. He's played a lot of your heroes, and I, I'd like to know a little bit more about that um, and why he is that way for you. You know, I, I have trouble explaining that to my, even to myself. Um, I think when you're young and you're impressionable and you see someone so charismatic on a screen or in a movie or a TV show or something like that, and um, you can sort of look up to that person because uh, Han Solo was a little bit of a rogue, but he had the heart of gold, you know, and, and he, he always kind of came out on top in the end. And, and in the end of the first Star Wars film, I mean, he kind of saved the day. You know, it was he was he was the guy I rooted for. And uh, that's why the, uh, the Empire Strikes Back was so sad because he kind of got, you know, he got frozen and taken away. And I was I was a little, you know, taken aback by that, even though I knew he was going to come back. Um so I think I don't know. I'm not sure how how that all happened. It just seemed like like you were saying in that seminal period of history, he just happened to pop up in all these iconic roles that I really enjoyed, and I love his acting style. He just really, I don't know anybody else who who acts like him, uh, who behaves that way. There are other actors who have their own styles as well, but if, to me, he's a, he's a one of a kind. He's he's a, a Bogart, you know. He's 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 got that thing, and um, I don't know. I just uh, it, it just his roles always spoke to me. That and uh, Indiana Jones, Deckard, um, Han Solo, the, those three right there. I mean, he was so dominant in the box office in the in the early to mid eighties. It's just absolutely insane. Like just the the stranglehold that he had on these like tentpole movie and through roles. the 90s really i mean every movie he yeah. he would open would be oh, the yeah. number one for the weekend i mean whether it was jack ryan or mosquito coast or you know so many of his he's a character actor he gets the kind fugitive of fugitive or anything yeah the fugitive he yeah, gets sidelined yeah. but he's a really good character actor well, and, and I think that's part of his appeal, and I don't want to, you know, um, steamroll this conversation, but I think part of what makes Harrison Ford so fascinating is that he is so magnetic and so powerful to watch, and yet he comes across like he underplays everything. I actually think that Bogart is a great comparison because um, similarly, Bogart came across very sort of um, subtle and, and almost like he didn't want to be there a lot of the time, but he was so charismatic that he couldn't help but be this indelible screen presence. And I think there's something similar with Harrison Ford in that way. close for another hour or so. It's raining pretty hard. I got my car. Yeah, that's right, it is, isn't it? You know, it just happened. I got a bottle of pretty good rye in my pocket. I'd a lot rather get wet in here. Well... Looks like we're closed for the rest of the afternoon. 
Um, and yeah. uh, I, I would actually say the same thing, not although not to the same degree, about Ryan Gosling. I think part of why Kay is such a fascinating character is because we can't stop looking at him, even though he isn't, you know, kind of pulling us um, along. You know, like we kind of are. There's a curiosity with him. It's it's there's a uniqueness to that screen presence. Yeah, I, I agree. That That's an interesting point. And when you asked uh, Lou the question about Harrison Ford, I thought about it for myself because I haven't really gone through it in detail, especially some of his other movies. I haven't even seen every single movie he's been in. So it's always a surprise when I rewatch an older movie that he's in. Um, but yeah, I agree with Patrick that while Gosling's look in movies and the way he plays characters always generally has a little bit of aura of mystery to it in the sense that he's quiet. Oftentimes, um, you know, even uh, what's the one we did with Russell Crowe that was kind of funny. It's like a 70s cop. The nice guys. The nice guys. The nice guys. Yeah. And that's definitely a different role for him. But he still has his moments where he's mostly acting with his eyes, you know. And I think, again, he's a little bit more extreme. Harrison Ford certainly, you know, is a little bit more forward and speaks more. And it's a little bit less in the eyes. But he does have that layer of mystery to him where you're like. It's hard to understand his motivations sometimes as a character, and and I think that's really intriguing. One one thing that came to mind is: has he ever really played a bad guy, like a straight up bad guy? Yeah, there was. Um, sorry to interrupt there. He he. Um, if you remember, what was that? Oh God, it was called What Lies Beneath. I think. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and actually, it was a pretty good movie. I think it was Zemeckis that did it. Yep. I'm, I could be mistaken. Michelle there, Pfeiffer, he, Robert Zemeckis. Yeah. Right. It was. It was sort of a Hitchcock takeoff. You know, like they tried to do yeah, a that Hitchcock thing was movie. Scary as shit. And it was good. Like I, I actually liked it. And it, it, they, it was a little bit of a plot twist. I think he was. He wasn't supposed to be the bad guy at first, and then after a while, you realize he actually was a bad guy, and he actually died on screen and stuff, which is something you don't see him do too too often, right? I mean, or right. again so in Mosquito Coast. In Mosquito Coast, he's kind of maligned. He's you think mm. he's one thing, and then he's his his um, character is so obsessed, obsessive. Yeah. Um, yeah. He kind of turns into the bad guy. Uh, as kind of fathers tend to do sometimes in, in the dynamic of a family. It's very interesting yeah. to see. How am I doing, son? Fine, Dad. I can't move. Just my head. You'll get better. Man sprang from a faulty world, Charlie. It's a bad design, the human body. Skin's not thick enough. Too little hair, no claws or fangs. We weren't meant to stand upright. Exposes our heart and genitals. Should be on all fours. Hairier. We failed. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Something Which, that I'm struck by, um, and uh, we'll, we'll move on from Harrison Ford momentarily, but um, it's interesting, Lou, in, in, almost everybody that we've had on <clears throat> the show um, has not singled out Deckard as part of their kind of anchor point into the first film. Um, and it's something that we actually, we went for like dozens of episodes before we did a, an, a dedicated Deckard show because for some reason, many of us um, haven't felt that strong of like like for for example I, I personally really identify with Roy in the first movie, mm-hmm. um, and I, I think and you know Jamie has Rachel we all kind of have these these different sort of ends to it so it's actually really interesting to have somebody who's so expert in this material and somebody who's such a lifelong fan um, kind of come out 
on the Deckard side. I, I really enjoy that, and I hope we get to talk a little bit more about his character in particular yeah, um, sure. as we go through this. I, I have a quick question for you going back. Um, when you saw the film as a kid, did you have an immediate feeling that you were going to have a lifelong relationship with it? Was it something that you walked out of and you were like, I'm going to return to this and eventually edit like a, a professional <laughs> collection of essays on it? No. Or is that something that evolved over time? I didn't think uh, that far into the future, no. Um, <laughs> but but I, it, I know it affected me. It didn't affect me in the way that Star Wars or Indiana Jones or anything like that did. Um, but I walked out of there. I was actually, I remember, I, I have hazy memories of it, but I remember being like a little bit scared in a way because it, it felt so, um, so real. Like it felt like, wow, this is really L.A. And, and back then, 2019 seemed far away, you know, because nobody knows what the future holds back then. It, it really could have turned into something like that. So I, I just remember being a little scared, like, wow, how, does, how are we going to survive in this kind of future? And, and then 2049 took it to a whole nother extreme, you know, with the weather and everything. I and mean, that's that's even more of a harbinger, I think. But but in 2019, really, it was a little, it was a dark, raining scary things flying around mannequins it was creepy and yeah. <laughs> so it was a little dark for me but i latched on again to harrison ford i mean and then from pretty much from from those indiana jones films and and all these films on i i watched just about anything i could get my hands on uh, you know like i think he moved on to what was it when did he do witness was that before blade runner i think it was before right and i just went bananas trying to see everything that, that he was in because he had just a certain charm, certain style, and uh, I just it, I just loved it. So a very unusual film for him was regarding Henry, actually written by J.J. Oh, Abrams, yeah. where he I is. Love that movie. Yeah, me too. Where he starts out the bad guy. Really, he's Never just he's an asshole. Uh, well, J. he's yeah, he's just like a curmudgeon, like kind of a jerk. But he's I don't I wouldn't call him a bad guy, but he I think they yeah. were just trying to show the the change in him you know from from jerk off to you know <laughs> to nice guy but what a what a powerful movie and one you yeah. don't ever um hear about and also uh presumed innocent was another one yeah was, was excellent yeah. you yeah. know and you don't he, he i don't know if he gets those kind of roles anymore you know but 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 what juicy meaty roles for him to have to uh you, you can understand why he chose them you know they were different from the other films he did and uh, you know, oddly enough, he never got any uh, major rewards or anything. You know, you know, there's, I mean, there's even like uh, the Age of Adeline. I don't know if you've seen that, right. but that was mm -hmm. a recent yeah. film of his where he's full, he's bearded, and I mean, he's really plays. A, I mean, you don't see him until later in the film, but he's really warm and um, really emotional, and it's just a really mm -hmm. wonderful role. I mean, I, there's so many of those films that he's been in that a lot of people just don't know. They just know Star Wars. They know Blade Runner. Or, you know, the big roles, Indiana Jones. Um, but yeah. I, I think he's really special. Uh, getting further into Blade Runner, because I want to know a little bit more, like, um, to get to the point where you're going to put together uh, a series of essays and have people contribute to that, films obviously have to really impact you in in a very important way. You have to be thinking about them. Obviously, it has to be on your mind. So I'm curious, like, if you just as a for instance, so if you lay down and close your eyes and you're going to think about Blade Runner, what do you think about? Wow, uh, that's a deep question. <laughs> that's what I, we do. Yeah. Wow. Um, no, I mean, I, I it, it is. A, well, I want to say it. I, I kind of put the two together now in my head. So um, 
they are movies that require, I believe, many, many, many repeated viewings. Uh, there are lots of subtleties under the hood. And when I think about them and I get deep in my head and my own thoughts, especially with the newer film, um, you know, I think about the future and I think about where we're going as a, as, as I don't know, as, as, as humans, where, where are we going? What are we doing? And what are we leaving behind? Because is, is that the attitude we're going to have? We're going to just kind of screw over the world and then, well, we're, we're going to die and leave it to whoever and let them deal with it. Or, I mean, is that where we're going? Is that what we want to do? Or do we want to um, help the planet and be hopeful and try to fix things? Maybe we've done some damage. Maybe we can fix some things. I see all these messages in the, in the newer film, especially the older film, I guess when I saw it when I was younger, it to me it was just a, a cop chase, you know, like it was it was a, a guy on a mission. I didn't pick up all the subtleties. I mean, I was a kid. <clears throat> Sorry. So uh, you know, later on, you know, when when uh, I think it was released on VHS and all that sort of thing, I taped it off TV. You know, I, I started to pick up little things here and there, but you know, I was still young. You know, I used to watch movies strictly for entertainment. I wasn't looking for the deep messages. So now when I think about them in conjunction, you know, kind of put them together, um, I guess I think about all those messages and, it, and, it, and, and going back to what I was saying before, it, it still scares me. It scares me a little bit that, that we could end up the way 2049 is when 2049 rolls around. What's fascinating about your um, explanation about kind of how the film sits with you in your psyche or in your heart um, is I've not heard your, I've not heard usually when we're talking, certainly us three, or when, when you're, we're interviewing other people, everyone kind of gravitates to a character. This is what I feel. Um, this is kind of what represents me or this is what interests me, but you're kind of the big picture a little bit. And that's a really, I, to be honest with you, I never think that I'm so sort of down the rabbit hole of, character and experience and Rachel and um, loss and memory and all of those things that I don't mm. really process where could we be as a, uh, as a, a country or a world at that point. But certainly these films, certainly, as you said, 2049 is a statement on that. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I think me, so anyway. Let me jump in and throw Lou a softball because <laughs> from a, from a third person's perspective and having, Work with Jamie for a while, having seen his documentaries and kind of knowing the way he thinks, and then having read a little bit of Lou's work um, in in the book that you edited and, and wrote articles for or, or essays for, I think a lot of that comes from. I, I'm just gonna make a brief statement, and then Lou, you can tell me more. If, tell me if I'm correct and expound on it. But sure. I think Jamie really could. Obviously, you're a lover of cinema, but Jamie really connects to film. Um, in like a very specific emotional way that I think he's described in previous episodes and listeners know. Um, and not to say that you don't have that connection to cinema, but I think that um, being, I think you might write more often or um, let, let's just stick to androids. I think that having read that novel many more times than I know me and Jamie, I can't speak for Patrick, but I feel like from reading your articles, it really sticks with you a lot. Uh, and the falling apart of society and the, um, sort of the lack of empathy, the problem of us humans losing empathy and whether Decker can have empathy for an Android in the book, et cetera, I think is really prominent. And 
I think that uh, visually they represent some of those ideas, especially in 2049, but in, 20, in, in Blade Runner, the original as well, in the dark gloominess of it, uh, you know, the rain, the radioactive fallout, the emptiness of Vegas, the fact that only bees seem to be around in the second movie. So, um, yeah, I think this is a nice segue into some of the things I know you feel about the novel. But um, that that would be my initial observation in terms of your response being more big picture is I have a feeling that the novel sits with you a little bit more than it might with us or, or the average um, Blade Runner viewer. Yeah, I mean, I think it does, but it it, it took me a little while. I, I mean, I'm not going to you know, BS you on that. Uh, it took a few reads. When I was young and I saw the movie, I went out and got the book and I didn't get it. I was a bit of a mess with it. You know, all those themes uh, that Dick wrote about just all over the place, you know, so many huge things for a little kid. I, oh, I Yeah, and Dick I doesn't write it. easy books. You know, no, I've read three no. or four of them and like <laughs> they all require multiple readings and yeah. they're often a kind of a drug trip. Like they're challenging material, I think. Yeah, yeah, you are correct. And I just remember being being so confused because the, this book is not very much like what I just watched, you know. <laughs> but but I said in one of the essays um, as well that, that that sort of made me more intrigued and made me want to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And how does this all fit? Like, how do how does the book fit with the movie? And how do, how do all these other these things I'm reading in magazines? How do they all fit in there? And so I'd see a picture of a maybe a deleted scene or a shot that wasn't in the film, and go, "Oh, where does that go?" You know, and try to put it together. And I did all the same stuff with Star Wars. I mean, I was always addicted to the deleted scenes, and I ran uh, some Star Wars sites for a long time. And and one of the big big draws to um, one of the sites that I ran was all the deleted scene material that was what people used to kind of come come around for uh mostly i think anyway until the prequels came out and then it was a lot of uh news but um yeah i mean i hope that kind of answers your question a little bit no let's move into uh the the seed of the book when did that start when did you when did you think okay enough talking this these conversations are leading to something bigger and i know that you have been working on and have released and are currently working on similar books that are kind of um mm -hmm. explorations into you know films so I, i'm just curious about this journey though yeah well let's let's let me take it back to um to my friend rich hanley um who's written for uh, so many things uh, now he write he does essays for DC. He writes uh, intros to a lot of the books for IDW and other big comic places. Um, he he and I connected during the Star Wars years back in the day uh, when the internet was still sort of new. Uh, we started to get back in touch a few years back, and he was putting together one of these essay anthologies about Planet of the Apes. And uh, he needed someone to write uh, an essay on this group of comics that had something to do with the um, the Tim Burton movie. Uh, if you remember that one, Tim Burton did his Planet of the Apes film in the late 90s. Oh, yeah, that train wreck. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> Dumpster he, fire. Yeah, there were a bunch of comics that were related to that. And he had people covering just about every aspect of Planet of the Apes uh, comics, but he didn't have anybody who wanted to cover that little piece of history there. So he sent me all the comics, and I, I wrote the essay, and we he put it in the book. And I thought, wow, what a great idea, an essay anthology. Okay, great. And then he, um, him and another guy, Joe Baronado, 
they started to put together these Star Wars anthologies, similar things. And they did three of them, and I wrote for uh, two of those as well. So being that I, you know, I was involved in that sort of um, format, I went to the publisher, Secourt, and I, I pitched to them a Blade Runner book because I looked at their roster and what they were doing. They covered uh, a lot of comics, Secourt meaning sequential art, you know. So they, they sort of were in that area, but they were looking to branch out more into pop culture. So they started to do the Planet of the Apes, Star Wars, Star Trek and, books. And that's sort of their – that's like their their mission statement, right, is to, is to treat comics as seriously as they kind of deserve to be treated. That's kind of mm-hmm. where that company came from initially, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's absolutely right. And uh, but but they wanted to kind of get out into more uh, other areas as well. So I said, hey, guys, you know, and this was a few years before the new the new film came out. I said, you know, uh, now is a good time to maybe, um, you know, to do something on Blade Runner. It's kind of got a I feel anyway, like a cult thing in a way because you know not everybody's into it and and the universe is kind of small at the moment so now we could probably cover all aspects of it and and do a nice complete essay anthology and they went for it right away and uh rich couldn't rich was too busy to edit it with me so he referred me to joe bongiorno and uh we just did it it was the same process we got people together we we got them to pitch ideas we gave them ideas and uh we just Put it all together, and uh, that's that's kind of it's the long and short of it, really. And then Rich survives in the final book because he wrote the essay about the Red Dwarf connection, correct? Right, 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 right. <laughs> which is which is a, a a relatively forgotten about. I think it's a British sitcom, right? It's a sci-fi mm-hmm. a comedy sitcom yep. from like the late '80s. Um, and he writes this really interesting essay about it in the book that I I really enjoyed. It's a very very funny show. I've I I actually um, just recently started to watch it so i went out and got the dvds and stuff so i've been i've been sort of binging it as i'm finding the dvds on uh ebay and uh they still are actually are making them so every few years they'll come out really yeah every few years they come out with a new one we're about to watch uh 10 and 11 series 10 and 11 because over in the in the the uk they do it by series you know they don't do seasons they do series it's only like maybe six episodes or something so uh it's pretty easy to binge because they're only half hours uh episodes you can get through a whole season in one night pretty much (laughs) that's awesome yeah it's pretty cool Um, so uh but very funny highly recommended and uh and his essay was really good it is, yeah. I, I was really struck by the scope of what you have in here. I feel like there are, um, like it, it, it covers for one thing a lot about the book, which I think is great because a lot of us sort of forget to refer to it and go back to it and to look at. I think, I think one of your essays uh, talks about a lot of the sort of basic parallels, like for example, like where the character of Sebastian came from, where, um, you know, like, um, like Deckard's um, counterpart, Blade Runner, in the book, who disappears from the movie. Um, there's a lot of really cool stuff on the book in the cyberpunk nexus, but you also go out uh, and go into a lot about the, the, the way that Blade Runner, um, changed through its iterations and through the edits that, you know, something that we talk about a lot, but we don't get to analyze too much, which I thought Mm. was really interesting. Um, the music, there's some great music essays in there. Um, you have a whole section dedicated to 2049, so my point being that um, there's a ton of material in this book. It's like 500 pages or something, 400 pages, um, and it's uh, it's a joy to read. And I'm curious, how did you find a lot of these people who ended up um, collaborating with you on this? Like, like was this a kind of a call for submissions thing? Was this in a message group? Like, how did you come across some of these people? 
Um, well, some of them I had known, like Rich and, you know, of course, Joe and some of the other folks. And if you look at some of the names, not all of them, but a few of them, uh, we had worked previously together on some of the, the, the other books I was mentioning, the Star Wars books or the Planet of the Apes books. And then um, we, I also have this this rich and i are doing this battlestar galactica book which is a similar thing that's that's 40 years um this year is the 40th anniversary so we're trying to it's all done we're pretty much have to get get it into um layout and all that stuff now but you'll see some of the same names in that book when that comes out as well kelly fitzpatrick and some other folks you'll 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 see them in there but um it was yeah it was more like a reaching out to people that we knew tried and true and then there were uh, referrals. Uh, Kevin Rubio, actually, if you know, do you know who Kevin Rubio is? He he's uh, he did the he does comics and stuff and uh, films and stuff. He lives out in L.A. He he um, referred a, a few people to me who ended up in the book. Robert Burnett is that where Bryce Carlson came from? Uh, I don't know Bryce. I think I contacted myself actually. Oh okay. Uh, because he had done that really exhaustive um do i enjoy dream of electric sheep comic okay. uh, adaptation the graphic novel that's that i have it's like a brick it's huge but it's awesome so so awesome and uh when i looked inside the flap to see who who had done it i, I said well let me just contact him and see if he's interested and um and he was so he he put in his whole making of essay in there which i loved i thought it was great um, and then some of them were just people I came across, you know, people that I knew. And I said, Hey, you know, would you like to, to do something? And I'll tell you a funny story about, um, one of the other guys, but, uh, but Kevin, Kevin Rubio was originally supposed to write for the book, but he got a little too busy, so he couldn't do it. Um, but he referred to me, um, <clears throat> like I said, Robert Burnett and some, and some other names, a couple, a couple who couldn't do it. But, um, Charles de la Zurica was actually involved for a hot minute there. Um, but he also, yeah, yeah, great guy. Really really, of ours. Yeah. Such a great guy. Um, but he just got a little too busy at the moment too. So he, he really didn't want to, you know, let anybody down. So that was, that was okay. Um, but Mike Beidler, uh, is a guy I've known also from as, as long as I've known Rich Hanley from back in the day. Um, we, we, I was getting a little nervous, um, because we, we had all the topics set. We had a lot of the essays written. Time was starting to go by. Uh, the, the publishing process was, get, was a little bit bogged down due to some reasons on the publisher side. So there was, uh, you know, kind of like the weeks were going by and we didn't really have much progress. And I was getting a little nervous because um, we had just about everything covered except for the KW Jeter books. And nobody wanted to do this. So, and I have, <laughs> I have uh, two of them, and I was just kind of looking at them on the shelf, and I had never really read them. I, I I've kinda, never, I haven't read any of those. Yeah, yeah I, I, I flipped those. through them, and I was kind of like, I knew they, I kind of knew they weren't going to be great, and I said, you know what, I, I don't know if I want to, because that worst case scenario was I'm going to have to read these things. And I'm gonna have to write. I'm gonna have to write something. <laughs> so, right. It was like, oh my god, I don't want to. I don't want to be this close to being pretty complete and then not have that bit covered. So all of a sudden, in, it was like this weird serendipity thing. Mike Bidler sends me a, a message out of the blue and says, you know, hey, I just read all these uh, KW Jeter uh, Blade Runner books. Uh, do you have any room? Like to, you know, basically he just offered to write the thing. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, 
yes, I, I, this is exactly what I need. <laughs> Do you know? I? Like, that's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and the title of that essay, I think, is something like The Blade Runner Books You've Never Read or something, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, it's, like and Blade it, Runner 2 is a famous one. <laughs> and being that it was sort of a – I don't want to say it was a lot. It definitely wasn't a last-minute edition, but it was a late edition, we'll say. Um, it, it really gets uh, a lot of mention. Uh, in reviews and things like people talk about it a lot he gets real jazzed every, every time there's a review and he, he writes me a message hey look look what they said so uh, yeah, yeah it's very very cool and, and I, you know there's not an essay in this in this book that i'm not really proud of everybody totally went the extra mile and turned in some, some of the stuff i was reading and I was, I was like wow this is just gold i mean i, I love i love this like um Brian Robinson's piece on the the film noir and all that just yeah, re- just yeah. really cool to get all those parallels in one place because you know usually you get one of these Blade Runner books and it just talks about you know Ridley Scott on the set it was wet it was rainy and the, the, all the problems with the director and, the, 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 and all the crew and blah 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 and it's it's very cut and dry black and white this, yeah, this everyone I, hated it yeah, right, and right. how it and how it, it came out, it bombed, and Star Trek Two was out, and all ET was out, and all these other things. So, and and that's part of the book as well, of course. So, which uh, Robert Burnett wrote that piece, I believe. It's a, it's a really good piece too. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I like this the way the book came out because it, it really goes to those other places. It, it reaches out a little totally. bit further. I, I feel it does anyway. I mean, maybe I'm a little biased, but... <laughs> no, it totally does. And, and <laughs> before we move on from this topic, I, I just want to do a quick shout out. There are a few other people uh, that we uh, are very good friends of the show who have been on episodes before who are in here. Um, among them, there's a forward by the legendary Paul M. Salmon. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a great... It's a, I absolutely love um, his contribution to this. And then also, Timothy Shanahan. Yep. who uh, has been on two sup two episodes that have come out uh, with us over the last couple of weeks. And he writes, a, it's called Mirrors for the Human Condition. It's a great piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so totally, yeah, yeah the, yeah, the book has quite a lot going on. Yeah, I was happy he he agreed to be. He was the first essay we got, actually, was Tim. Uh, really? I was, I was re- very happy that he uh, allowed us to, um, to use one of his pieces uh, in the book. Because it, it it really, like I said, it it gives it takes it to another level, you know. It, it yeah. speaks. It speaks about Blade, Blade. Well, yeah, and it speaks about Blade Runner in in a different way. It's not just right. the, the the black and white of the movie. And Paul Paul was great. He 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 was uh, very cool about writing the forward. Um, in fact, he didn't know he was writing the forward in the beginning. I just said, "Hey, would you like to be involved in this book?" And he was. She said, "Sure." You know. So. I, uh, I said, well, you know, would you would would you like to do the forward? And yeah, and he, he, you know, was very keen on it. So, uh, yeah, so it was great working with him. He's got all that perspective, and he wrote a really uh, nice forward, very poetic. It's very um, poetic. I, I want to yeah. read the title just because the the title is one of the best parts of the whole thing. The title mm-hmm. of his forward is "The Death of Everything: Blade Runner, Entropy, and the Drums of Doom." Mm-hmm. It's it's fucking great. It's such a good very, way to start. Very forward. very cool. Uh, yeah. So so again, we were kind of blown away with that, and just all this great stuff coming together. And um, I don't know, it, it worked out well. I'm very 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 happy with the book. The publisher's happy with the book. I haven't had anybody come to me so far. It's been out since I think July. No one's come to me so far and said, yeah, I don't know. It's okay. You know, <laughs> everything's been, you know, hopefully sincere and just very much like, like the wow factors there. And, and that's what we were going for. We just want everybody to have a good experience reading the book and to maybe come away with a little bit of a knowledge. Cause some of the stuff you're going to know, 
if you're a fan and some some of it you might not especially the the, the stuff about the newer film i'm hoping because there's not a no one's really had a chance to overanalyze all that stuff yet uh i'm fascinated to hear your opinion or kind of let's i want to dive into your experience of the new film these are questions that i always like to ask because it was you know 30 years 35 years later but before we get into that or i get into that i want to uh, ask you something about your essay and your relationship with deckard and how for a long time you believed that he was human and then the tables were kind of turned on you and you were in this Mm. existential crisis and while I was reading that, I was I, I was like, it was fascinating to me because I don't care if he's a replicant or not. It doesn't matter to me. Like, I don't. Uh, but I, I love hearing a different perspective. Unless someone likes joy, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> we were arguing. I sense an, I sense an in joke there. Uh, we were argu- we were arguing about joy last night for a long time. like she's the only character anybody can talk about because we have these sort of like infinite arguments about about her, which is fun. Which but, is mostly uh, me against them or them against me. It's just, <laughs> it's just Jamie. No, it's but Jamie versus the world. That's true. That's true. Uh, uh, but. In terms of Deckard, um, I really would like to kind of get into your headspace as to why that was a difficult thing for you and what about him being human or not human, um, what what was the leap for you? What In terms of, like, how you feel about him, what changed knowing what you know? Or Because reading your essay, it obviously sounds like you believe a certain thing about Deckard. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not, in terms of the films, it's not defined. It's still right. ambiguous, so we mm-hmm. can make a choice to believe one thing or the other. I actually recently came to a, uh, an opinion that Deckard is also a replicant, but at the same time, I'm also open to him not still not being one. But right. I really wanted to know about uh, the difficulty you had processing that. We began to recognize in them strange obsession. After all, they are emotionally inexperienced with only a few years in which to store up the experiences which you and I take for granted. If we gift them past we create a cushion or pillow for their emotions and consequently we can control them better memories you're talking about memories right and i'm i'm on board just as an aside i'm i'm on board with you in that what you just said as well like i if if i have come to terms which is part of the part of the title of the essay coming to terms with it um of him being a replicant i I'm okay with that part, but I am also open to it as well. If 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 it ever was defined, now I have to keep in mind that this that essay, that particular essay, was written before the new film was out, and no one knew if the question was going to be answered or not. So it was a little bit open, and there was a lot of discussion in the previous years about Ridley Scott. Um, actually, interviews with I, I was watching with him doing research and stuff, where he would just come out and just about say it without really saying it he'd he'd go he'd say like well isn't it obvious you know or something like that and 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 you so you you kind of you almost don't know who who to believe in a way because harrison ford will laugh it off you know go ah whatever and then you know you you ask anybody else they're gonna have a different opinion so yeah i I can't even i don't even want to let anybody put kinder words or softer words in Ridley Scott's mouth. And I'll paraphrase because I'm not going to take the time to look it up right now, but I'm Mm -hmm. I'm pretty sure Scott said uh, at one point after either the director's cut or the final cut that he said, basically, if you don't understand that Deckard's a replicant, 
after watching this, you're a moron. Yeah, right. that, yeah that's verbatim. No, that's verbatim. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I think there's an F-bomb in there you're missing. <laughs> yeah. But the weird thing, though, is that when uh, Ford was hired on for the part, he was pitched something completely different. So I don't buy what Ridley Scott says, to be honest with you. Well, oh, I'm not. Yeah, I don't buy it either. I'm just saying, let's not mince words. That's what oh, yeah. Ridley believes about his movie. That's all I was saying. Yeah, now that's what he believes. And I'm sure they told everyone that Darth Vader was not Luke's father, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, those, they do that kind of stuff on the set as well all the time. But, but I mean, I could uh, – I don't know. I don't know who to, who to believe. But, yeah, what you were just saying about Ridley Scott, that's, that's what I was referring to before. And so – and I think a lot of it has to do with age and perspective as well. When you're young, you, you don't want to believe that kind of thing, right? Do you like – because it doesn't – actually, it didn't even cross my mind. It, when I was young, I just figured he was a guy. He was, he was like, you know, the version of the film you saw as a young person was, right. was much clearer about that. Right, right, right. So you didn't, you didn't, I guess when, well, I don't know about anybody else, but me, when I was younger, I, I didn't have that philosophical mind. Like I did, I wasn't thinking that deeply. I was just seeing a guy getting chased by these four robot things. And to me, science fiction was so cool. That I didn't care, <laughs> you know, what was, what was going on under the hood. I just wanted to see like a, a androids fighting a, a cop, you know, that was pretty cool. So uh, yeah, that's, that, that was as deep as I got. And I guess it was later as these interviews are coming out and you read more about the making of the film and you read Paul Salmon's book and you you, you just kind of take these steps and steps and steps, and then you realize, well, wait a minute. And then there's Ridley Scott saying, well, duh, you know, he, uh, Gaff finds, I mean, Gaff leaves him the little, the origami, and he picks it up, and it's the unicorn, and ha ha, you know, hey dummies, I made the director's cut. There's the unicorn, yeah, it, right. It's like you, you kind of put it together, and you say, well, the evidence is a little overwhelming, uh, even though he kind of had to, to to tell you, you know, look a little closer, duh, it's all there. Um, so I, I had to kind of changed my mind a little bit and then i was also under the impression that well i wasn't under the full impression but i thought there's a 50 50 shot here that when the new film comes out they're gonna they're gonna clear this up so i thought looking at all this evidence it's really sort of weighing on the side of him being a replicant and and then all of a sudden all these other theories come into your head about you know, Bryant and Gaff and like who knew and who didn't know and what well, like was he the first replicant? Were, were there six decades before him? You know, like you don't like there's just all this crazy stuff. So so that appealed to me as I got older and then I started to like that theory more. Whereas before I was one of those guys that was like, oh poo poo on that, no way. Um, but yeah, I guess that's the long winded version of it. But l- uh, let me let me um. P- pinpoint it a little bit more try to get uh what was it happening in you that was upsetting to you about this change what made that what did that change in deckard for you did that make him counterfeit for you did did you feel like okay now maybe what i what i was uh relating to is just programming and it's not real what was Mm -hmm. it yeah yeah that i mean yeah you're just saying you just said it it was it was like i've been fed a lie like i felt a little bit betrayed like oh wow but but it I thought about it more in the sense of the story and the bigger picture, you know, so I didn't let it upset me. I just came to terms with it. And I said, okay, obviously this is where they're going. Okay. All right. Let me just, let me just swallow that pill before we get into the next movie where, you know, they may or may not say so. And, and I, you know what? I'm glad they didn't. I really think that this whole question is what keeps this, 
this whole, I don't know, you want to call it a franchise or whatever, this whole franchise alive. That's what's going to keep this universe going is this this ongoing question that's probably never going to get definitively answered outside of what Ridley Scott was saying there. <laughs> yeah, no doubt that was a smart move to, yeah, we've talked yeah. about it before, to let the ambiguity continue and let yeah. people make up their own minds and think about it for themselves. And, and I think Fancher actually thinks the opposite. Which which makes the puzzle even crazier because it's like how could the writer think one thing but the director think something else, like like who's who's in charge who's yeah you know, who's running the uh, asylum, and also like the fact that part of the what the book hinges upon is him being human, right? Mm-hmm. Whereas but really Scott didn't read the book famously when he made the movie so like so he was right. already kind of taking it in a different direction so right there at the beginning you have this divergence of opinion and and the guy that wrote it was writing it with the the fact that Deckard was a human in mind. And then you, you, the continual eroding of the clarity around that and the subsequent versions of the film meant that like, by the time we get to 2049, we're all totally ambiguous because we haven't seen a serial number. It's as simple as that. You know, like, but, uh, There's no concrete proof either way. So, And what's great about Villeneuve, Villeneuve doubling down on that ambiguity in 2049 is that there are ways to follow that thread of logic in both directions that um, are rife throughout the movie because you know we could talk about the fact that he was like surviving in a radiation zone being evidence that he was a replicant or mm-hmm. you know the the fact that he was um this like you know miracle progenitor meaning that he was a human you know like there's there's all these different angles mm-hmm. to take it and i and i think we're so lucky that it's more confusing than ever and also i love the fact that ridley scott is so opinionated and ridiculous and cantankerous <laughs> it's, part of, it's part of what makes him um a great and also sometimes terrible director but he's interesting you know right um and, and also, and, and also that question of you know, well, why, why does why is Roy Batty so strong and Deckard is like he shouldn't they have been an even match in the fight, right. you know, punching each other? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. much. But you know, then then you say, well, maybe he was made differently. Maybe he was, you know, there's all these X factors and all those little threads, like you were just saying, are what kind of make this whole thing uh, work like clockwork to me, like because they all kind of intertwine. And, and in the beginning, maybe not so much because you only had the one movie and that was pretty much it. Yeah, the book, but to me, they were two separate entities. They, I didn't put the book and the movie together. I may mean, try to, <laughs> but it wasn't exactly going to work. So, uh, you know, I kind of think of them as, as, as two happy beings you know, on their own. Um, like almost like the film is a replicant of the book in a way, you know, a little different. What's interesting as well is. The, the Ridley Scott at that period, you know, the period where he's making Alien and Blade Runner and Legend and those films at that point in his career, I mean, I think he was, in my opinion, I think he was a better director, but I, I've always been of the opinion that great science fiction asks questions, it doesn't answer them. Um, and I really think the Ridley Scott at that point knew that, that the question was better than the answer. And yeah. the question's always more, more for me, it's more satisfying for me than be giving, being given answers. And, yes. Uh, and sure. the, yes. and the, uh, the science fiction films that I watch today that really upset me or, or I, I find myself frustrated with is because it's trying to answer everything. Well, this happened and then this happened and it's answering questions. Other films pose that I'm like, man, that's what made these films Amazing, mm-hmm. you know, when mm-hmm. when Kane and Lambert and Dallas enter into the uh, the jockey, you know, the space jockey room. Um, it, you're all of it is question. What is this? Where did it come from? 
I never needed that question answered, not to Mm -hmm. get into that specifically, but it was a really wonderful forbidden planet. Where are we? Um, It just, it's one of the greatest sci-fi moments in history. And I feel like uh, the original Blade Runner, um, everything was a question. Um, And uh, even to the point that you're making or you, you were discussing about when, certainly in your essay and when you were just talking about when Deckard picks up the unicorn, I've, you know, seen, of course, the film many, many times. And the last time I saw the film, which I think I was actually watching it with you, Dan, uh, and I see Deckard pick up that unicorn and then you hear him or you see him remember what Gaff says, you know, too bad she won't live, you know, then again, who does? And he has that look. And I always thought, I always thought and assumed because this is what everyone said. He sees the unicorn. He, you know, he remembers. You know, thinks, "Oh my God, I'm, I'm not human." And I realized at that moment, for me, this, how I perceived it was, this wasn't Deckard realizing that he's a replicant. This is Deckard realizing that life is short, and that he needs to love this woman. Um, wow. Despite right, and that and that Rachel is a unicorn. Yes. I think. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's mm. the other side of the unicorn coin. And I don't think anyone can definitively say either way, but I'll, I'll mention quickly just because I don't know if Lou, you made it through all of uh, Tim Shanahan's philosophy and blade runner book. Um, but I would direct the listeners to that book because that towards the beginning, it might be chapter two. I can't remember right now, but he goes through the Decorect debate and, uh, breaks it down in the 10 most common points that people use to show that Deckard's a replicant and he explains them and then has a counterpoint. And so he goes through the unicorn point as well as the eyes and all of that. And for anybody that's interested, I think that that particular chapter is really fascinating because that's probably the first time I'd heard what Jamie's talking about right now in terms of the unicorn actually having, instead of, you know, if you want Deckard to be human, just kind of ignoring the whole unicorn situation um you know he was the first person i read that said well i think this might actually be talking about rachel and so jamie brings up a really good point and yeah it, it's a it's a good read if anybody's interested in delving mm-hmm. deeper into it and and to that point as well we were talking about picking up the unicorn i just going back to when i was you know younger watching the film even even on vhs i that was one of those i think i put it in my essay that was one of those little epiphanies i had later on down the road was when i when i used to see him pick, pick up the the, the origami and he would hear the voice he would kind of look and he'd make that little smile um that only harrison ford could make that little that half smirk. that little half grin yeah <laughs> um i i when i was younger i used to say well he just he knew that gaff was there and let her go oh what a nice guy you know like uh, you know i didn't even go any deeper than that but later on subsequent viewing the director's cut blah 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 you see the unicorn then you see the origami and then later on you, you put it together and you say oh you know maybe there's something more to this <laughs> you know like it's a, you start to get those thoughts and then you know of course it develops from there but uh yeah i i never put those scenes together when i was younger so that's cool i i i, I love when movies grow like that they grow on you to that they point change. yeah and uh, as i as we've been discussing i, I was realizing you know as many of us do we see these films that we were younger and as we grow older i mean i've had the soundtrack i've been listening to the score to blade runner 2019 since i was 12 or 13 since it was mm. it was available i, I remember buying it i remember you getting the it fake one uh, the, uh, the fake orchestra one uh, i don't think i know i bought the legit real one actually i still have my uh cd case from the 90s in my closet right now with the the sleeve in there yeah. which is funny yeah i got um, that too wow. but i i realize uh 
as the older I get, the more meaningful Blade Runner becomes. Um, the yeah. more we think about life, and I experience the film differently, um, especially like the last eight years of my life. I never really thought about Rachel too much before until like the last eight years, and I'm like, oh my god, this is my favorite character of both films. Um, mm. And and I, it seems to me, but from reading um, your essay specifically, um, that the film certainly is growing with you. Um, but to, to jump to something, I, I just devil's advocate a little bit. Um, is there any essay in the book that you were like, wow, I didn't realize, uh, or I didn't know that this person, like for instance, I read uh, uh, an essay that I left not knowing if the writer liked the film or not. Um, it didn't seem like they did. And I'm curious if there was any surprises in there for you. Oh, there were lots of surprises in the essays. Let me get a copy of the book out. Let me take. A, let me look at the uh, table of contents. Refresh my memory. I've been in Battlestar Galactica land lately, so this is. I have to refresh my memory. Um, are you speaking? Would you? Would you tell, say who it was if I said who? It yeah, was? it was Joe's. <laughs> oh, Joe's. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. See, Joe. Joe actually really loves loves it. He. The funny thing about Joe is he. I don't think he was as huge a fan as I was um, in the beginning of this. When I asked him on, he was kind of like, well, you know, I like Blade Runner. <laughs> you know, like that was, that, was his, that was kind of his reply. But, but Joe, if you, if you ever get to know him or speak to him, is, he, I mean, he's just one of the smartest guys you're ever going to meet. And he's a phenomenal writer and editor. Like the guy is just off the chart. You know, I, when I read his stuff uh, and, or edit his stuff even, I learn all kinds of things. <laughs> like just, it's great. So it's like a learning experience, um, and rich too, to a point as well. Um, let me look. Let me look through here. Yeah, Joe. Jo, let me see. I liked uh, Tom Lennon's piece, also a late edition, where he talked about Metal Hurlant magazine and all that stuff. Um, the heavy metal magazine. Um, I I wasn't aware that I knew there was an influence, but I wasn't aware how deep it actually went. Um, so that was very very cool to read. Um, I liked Paul uh, Salamos' piece about why he loves the theatrical cut. I thought that was very controversial. Um, people seem to mention that one a lot as well, and he he sticks by it and. Um, you know, it's really hard to even disagree with him when you when you read it because he has a lot of. There are a couple of points in there I, I spoke to him about. I said I don't know about this, but he he's uh, his piece really um, gets a lot of a lot of uh, people talking. Uh, let me see. Oh, I liked um, Steve Head's piece about the seventy millimeter prints. Uh, I didn't know any about a lot of this. I knew it was in 70 millimeter, but I didn't know all the drama behind it. Well, a lot of good stuff there. He went and spoke to Doug Trumbull, and like he 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 really did a <laughs> a really good piece there. Um, let me see. Any more surprises? De definitely the the KW Jeter stuff because I'd never read it, so <laughs> I was right. I was very thankful for that. So uh, let's 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 continue on, so we can move on to twenty forty nine. So Mike, uh, thanks for coming on and uh, calling in. Sorry about the uh, miscommunication. I saw you calling, but it just wasn't. I couldn't add you um, without cutting the call off. Um, yeah, not a problem. Uh, can you just for obviously you know we have read a lot of the book. We haven't read everything, but uh, can you talk a little bit about how you came to be involved in it? Oh, you know, it's funny. It's uh, quite serendipitous that. Uh, in the lead up to 2049 coming out, I, I decided that, you know, being the 
the anal retentive guy I am when it comes to uh, you know canon and continuity. That I was going to finally sit down and read the uh, the Jetter novels just to see if if the new movie would take you know those particular stories into account. And uh, I had read the first one back when it first came out, and it, you know it was okay. And I just couldn't get through the second one. And you know, but with a lead up to the movie, I decided I was going to I was going to push through. And I had finished the novels and, you know, very, very disappointed in uh, the quality of the storytelling and uh, (laughs) that I just had to find an outlet. So I went onto Facebook and tried to find some Blade Runner groups and I came across uh, the Cyberpunk Nexus Facebook group and I said, hey, is this a great place to, you know, talk about these books? And uh, Lou, who, who I have actually known online for what a couple decades i think uh, yeah something like that yeah uh he said yeah this is a great place to talk about this oh by the way i i remember who you are and uh i think maybe about a a few days later got invited to i guess spill my guts on these these novels uh by writing an essay for the book and i think uh i was going to start by putting in a proposal and just ended up pretty much writing the whole thing in about three or four weeks. And uh, there we have it. Let's, because we've been discussing 2019 and Deckard, I really kind of want to move this conversation kind of to the last part of, of, of this discussion. And that really is, and of course, Mike, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts um, as you're new sort of to this discussion, but what, uh, what were your, and we can certainly get into, um, aspects of of the book or essays about 2049 but i'm i'm curious what you guys were thinking i mean a lot of people say the same things and obviously it's you know it's fine if you guys do too but like trepidation in terms of hearing about oh my god they're about to make a sequel to blade runner uh you know to the original blade runner um what was that journey like for you lou let's start with you yeah no i was into it right away i thought this is yeah i thought this is phenomenal this is great there are a lot of people who don't like that stuff they they you know it's a classic leave it alone kind of thing um i was into growing the universe i wanted to see more of the stuff i wanted to see where it was going to go um i was very 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 curious i i gotta be honest i a lot of the stuff in there i did not see coming i I didn't think a a lot of that was going to happen um the whole role reversal thing with um you know k because in the in the very first scene or two, you don't know who he is, what he's doing. Then he gets stabbed in the arm, and he barely flinches, and you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, Ooh, yeah. okay, that's a little different. And he's a replicant. That's uh, his job is to kill replicants. You know, it's it's kind of a little wacky. And the whole thing with the baby, you know, it's just like, wow, this is this is way out there stuff. And and I loved every minute of it. What about you, Mike? Uh, you know, I, I had heard of rumors of Ridley Scott having something waiting in the wings. I, I think he was going to do a sequel titled Metropolis. Now, this is back in the, I think, the mid-90s after the uh, the director's cut had come out. And I, you know, I thought, hey, you know, a, a sequel would be great. I uh, don't know if it could ever top uh, the original Blade Runner. Um, but, you know, of course, nothing ever happened with that. Um, but then when the announcement came out that there was indeed going to be a sequel, I was, and that Ridley Scott was not going to direct it. 
that gave me, uh, you know, a lot of concern until they announced who the director was, uh, Denny uh, Villeneuve. And, you know, seeing his past work, uh, especially with Arrival, uh, that came out a couple of years ago, I knew that the franchise was in very, very good hands. And I was very eager to see what he was going to be able to do with it uh, in conjunction with Ridley Scott executive producing the movie. Yeah, Arrival was uh, an interesting, it was interesting timing because it was almost like, um, like, oh, hey, he's going to be directing uh, Blade Runner, but let, let us show this, let you, let us show you this film real quick, just to calm your fears. You know, it was, it was just, yeah, it was great time. I mean, I had seen uh, Villeneuve's other films, um, you know, Enemy, Prisoners, which I thought was incredible. I mean, I don't, there's not one film that I've seen by him that I was like, you know, Sicario, that I was like, oh, okay, he's okay. I mean, every film I've seen, he's hit out of the park. And so, like you, when I knew that he was behind it, uh, I was just ecstatic. And I, I I had no doubts that what we're going to be getting, maybe even if I didn't like all of it, um, that it would be a, a solid film. And, and, and even as it relates to fandom and, you know, Blade, Blade Runner fandom isn't huge. You know, it's, it's concentrated and it's there, but it's small. But to see, from what I can tell, you know, certainly doing this podcast the past year, uh, 90 Two ninety-three, maybe a little bit more percentage of of the fans love this film, open their arms to this film, quote this film, talk about it, uh, spew their emotion and their connection to to every you know whether it's to Joy or to Deckard or to Kay. It's it's been quite an experience, and it, that type of thing doesn't happen anymore really with sequels. We don't get sequels that are this well made. Um, most of them are very divisive. They're very polarizing. There's a lot of hate. There's a lot of uh, love and there's some people who are in the middle like me for a lot of these things um, but to, to see Blade Runner 2049 open or and release with welcoming arms by the fans the hardcore fans it was it was a magical time for sure and one of the things I loved about the movie was it was unpredictable and I think Lou uh, pointed that out um, even with the trailers uh, you really couldn't tell exactly what the plot of the movie was and you couldn't tell the direction it was going to go. And I thought that was pretty masterful. Yeah, it was a nice example for once in modern times of a trailer being done properly instead of let's give away every single major point of this movie to where I'm to the point now where like if I have any interest in a movie – I'm just avoiding all trailers, to be honest, because I'm like, nowadays they just kill it. They give you so much in the trailer that they really, I mean, they don't, they try to avoid spoilers, but I feel like they just show you way too much. And um, whether Villeneuve was in charge of the final cut of the trailer, obviously he approved it, or whether somebody else was doing that, whoever edited that did a good job of showing you just enough of the world without spoiling it. Or trailers are made to uh, promote films that we're not going to see, which is, to me, case in point, so much of the time. We're like, oh, wow, this looks great. Well, that wasn't the movie was, that was promoted, like Prometheus and other right. films. And that's why I didn't like the, the Solo trailer. I mean, it, it, it's spoiled to know that he got the Millennium Falcon from Lando Calrissian. I mean, that just... 
I was like, what the fuck? Like that, they gave away most of the major plot points of the film um, in the in the trailer, and not even in like the late trailer, like in the teaser of it. So I was like, well, okay, kind of was setting it up for failure a little bit. So uh, how? Let's let's talk a little bit about uh, 2049's inclusion in. Uh, the cyberpunk nexus uh did you was it just a similar thing where you're like hey who wants to did you ask certain people hey can you uh talk about or you know in your in your piece can you talk about this how did you go about balancing that yeah that was um actually by chance uh, and 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 it was a sort of a blessing and a curse now the book was originally not supposed to cover anything about 2049 we were we were sticking with the first uh movie because the second uh, the, the trailer for the second film hadn't even come out yet. We were already uh, sort of in, on, you know, we were greenlighted, we were going and we were writing and stuff. So the, the problem was on the, um, uh, on the publisher side of things, it was moving a little, little slowly. Uh, there was, there were some issues going on uh, behind closed doors there that, you know, I don't, I'm not sure what was going on, but it, things were happening a little bit, slowly so we were we were in wait mode for a long time and by the time the the trailers came out i started to think uh-oh if we start to get too close you know we may have to start to cover this material and i didn't know if we uh had enough information yet to do it and i so i started to edit my own essays here and there with you know well now having seen the trailer for the new film we're really excited and then time went by <clears throat> And the film came out and uh, then it was like, okay, having seen the new film, this and this and this, you know, and then after even, you know, after the film was out, then it, it was about to come on video. And I said, you know what, because it didn't do that well in the box office, as you know, um, compared to, you know, you can, you can call it what you want, but compared to other films, I guess it didn't become the, the big hit that they wanted it to be. Um you know, the video was going to come out and I said, Oh, I think we may have to venture into 2049, uh, in this book a little bit because, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to, I don't know when it's going to actually be released and, you know, maybe a while. So, uh, that's, that's actually right about the time when, um, Mike, Mike had, Mike had already turned in his essay, I believe. And, uh, I had asked you if you knew, you knew anybody who would want to write for 2049 and he suggested Leah um, who did this really amazing piece I mean if you've seen it um, I'm gonna get my book uh, so I can get the proper title for you skin skin jobs and snow jobs Blade Runner 2049 as Clive noir and race erasure so it's this enormous topic about all kinds of, of great stuff and, and it has to do with the environment and racism and all kinds of great stuff and it's a just like a that's one of those pieces i was telling you earlier on uh when we were talking that kind of blew me away i was like this is just amazing um and that was uh thanks to mike here who uh, suggested leah actually all right mike yeah a little applause thank you yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, oh, sorry. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh no, I was just saying. So you know, Mike was pretty uh, in instrumental and influential in the book, uh, even though he came into the process a little bit later. Um, it was because of him we were able to cover those Jeter books and then have have a, another wonderful essay on twenty forty nine as well. 
You know, I have to say, this conversation has convinced me to go and finally read those three sequel novels. I, I think I just have to do oh it. Boy. I, I feel like I feel like as a fan <laughs> and a co-host of the Blade Runner podcast, I should probably read at least two of those. You know what, Mike? I'm um, going to need you to step in there. <laughs> you know, okay, so, so this, I think this is the point where we need to have an intervention. <laughs> I, there's there's two things I really want to make sure we cover. One sure. is a question that Dan has been sitting on for a while about the comics. I want to make sure he gets space to talk about that. And the other one is I just want to end with some quick reflections from you guys because people have heard us blab on for trillions of hours at this point. I want to hear some reflections on you guys on 2049. So um, so I, I'm going to kick it off to Dan before we close out. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so uh, for Joe, I was going to say that I just – ordered and got um the boom Comics series both the prequel and the full um and they're actually individual issues it's not the collection which in retrospect i wish i had just one book that had it all because that would just fit on a bookshelf a little bit nicely more nicely but um i'm into the uh first issue and uh i'll i'll let you talk about it but i'll briefly explain for anybody that doesn't know that again these were these are a word for word unabridged adaptation of do androids dream of electric sheep into comic form which is a crazy challenging thing to try and do and make successful and so having not read the whole thing and having not read uh the article in your book yet i wanted to see if you could talk a little bit about uh, a little bit more about well for one what bryce carlson's um, involvement was because you said he made them, but I didn't understand whether he's the producer, the artist, uh, or whether he put it all together. Um, so yeah, if you want to talk a little bit about the boom comics, which people might not know about and they're relatively recent, so they're still available. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, Bryce's story kind of blew me away too. So if you look at those comic adaptations, whether you have these individual issues or the, the full omnibus or, uh, whatever, whatever it was, I think it's called an omnibus, right? Um, it's, it is word for word. Now he, he had to sit there with his team. I, I'm not sure who, exactly how big a team he had, but, um, I know that he, he says in his essay that he, you know, hours, hours and hours and hours of reading the novel a gazillion times, but then also taking the pages and putting them into uh, a comic format, but only leaving out things like he said, she said, you know, that those sort of things, because you right. can't really, you don't really put those in comic bubbles, but every, uh, every other word beside those is in that graphic novel. And if you've seen the omnibus, I mean, it's gotta be like, I don't know, two inches thick or so. It's huge. It's, it's enormous. It's on my shelf. Uh, it, it's a beautiful, beautiful, uh, package. Um, I, I highly recommend it, especially if someone thinks that the book is a little too heady to get through, or someone doesn't want to read the the actual novel. Uh, maybe they just want some imagery to kind of fill things out and to get some visions in their head. Uh, it, it, it the artwork is is amazing as well. Like it's it's just a, a really well done piece, and he spent a lot a lot of time on. It. I just suggest you get, get just get the book and read that his whole experience about it. It's it's. It's wild. Uh, I, if, and he was just kind of starting out as an editor at that point, too. So it was one of his um, initial jobs <laughs> was to, to do this humongous thing. 
<laughs> right. That's and, why, then, yeah, and again, super challenging. And to do all the back matter and interviews and all the uh, other stuff that went with it. And then, of course, they moved on to the the, the other issues you were talking about, the uh, the dust to the dust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the prequel issues. Um, and I think uh, Mario uh, wrote his whole uh, essay on that, which is which is very informative as well. And he he kind of takes you through it. Um, bit by bit as well. So, um, and, and what I liked about those is that they sort of led into the whole Mercerism thing and they, they, there's all these little, um, I don't know, I don't want to say callbacks cause it's a prequel, but these, all these little, uh, hints about things that are, that are, uh, coming. And yeah, and that's an eight issue, uh, story, the prequel to the novel in comic form again, that we're talking about. And, um, I was left with, it's pretty easy, quick read because again, it's not quite as text dense as, mm-hmm. uh, the regular adaptation of the book. And I was impressed really with how well paced and well written that story was as essentially an original story in the Blade Runner universe that from what I can remember, I've only read Blade Runner two. So Jeter's first, uh, novel. And I mean, this was right off the bat, a lot better to me. I mean, I just, yeah. it, it actually wraps and has a conclusion. Um, and Dr. Seuss is better than a Jetter novel. In a <laughs> <laughs> okay. so the bar was set really, really low. I, I was going to say, I mean, is this boom comic adaptation as good as Blade Runner three replicant night? Is this like, you know, are we talking like that caliber? I mean, <laughs> Oh my gosh! No, the Boom comics are really good. I would yeah, they they are. I I highly recommend them. Uh, good reads, and I think that's hopefully where Titan Books is going to be taking things more into that area. You know, separate stories that have their own characters and conclusions, and then uh, I'm talking comic wise, and then maybe they'll come out with some novels that tie in with the films as well. I mean, who knows where they're going to go? They might have had plans for movies, and now they they're thinking twice, and they're going to go into books and print and. I'm excited about all that too. You know, I would love to get involved in that whole uh, world. You know, hey, call me, guys. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> Patrick, you want to move on to your? Um, you were going to lead into 2049. Yeah, I, I just as we close out, you know, 2049 is something that has been on our minds even more than it always is. Otherwise, because we're coming up on the one year anniversary of the release, and something that we like to do when we have people on the show um, since the movies come out is get a sense of what it was like for them to uh, to see it and what that experience was like and then also how the movie sat with you and how it's uh, kind of evolved in your minds since because you guys are big Blade Runner fans, just like us. And uh, and I'm, I'm kind of curious. Why don't we go ahead and start with Mike? What was 2049 like for you to experience? Well, that was a pretty special uh, event for me because uh, one of my best friends from childhood uh, flew out from Michigan to... Uh, to come here to Washington, D.C. to see the movie with me. And my oldest son, uh, who was able to see uh, the final cut in the theaters at the Smithsonian IMAX uh, last spring, um, or you know, before the movie came out, uh, was also in the theater with us. So it was, it was a guy's night out with uh, two very special people who were huge Blade Runner fans. So, you know, they... Uh, I was kind of experiencing it not just for myself, but kind of through the eyes of, of uh, other friends. And um, I, I, I have to say that the the cinematography just absolutely blew me away. And, uh, you know, it, it wasn't as focused on inner, you know, the inner city uh, Blade Runner uh, 
universe, but uh, you know, kind of explored the margins of that. And I thought that was a great way to, you know, allow us a, you know, some more insight into the world as it, you know, would be in 2049. And I also thought that the music was absolutely profoundly moving. Um, I, I was glad that it wasn't Vangelis uh, redo. Um, I'm, I'm, I was very happy with uh, Hans Zimmer, and I, I can't remember who his uh, his co-composer was. Benjamin Walfish. Thank you. Um, just an absolutely moving score, and I, I think my wife would agree with me that uh, um, you know it, it just it it puts you back into that universe, um, just like Vangelis's uh, soundtrack did with uh, 2019. Um, so you've got the great cinematography, you've got the great music, and I thought the storyline just kind of took those existential questions about what it means to be human uh, to the next level. And that next level is the question of why does it matter if Jackard's a replicant or not? You know, we all went into the movie, you know, expecting that question to be answered. And in the end, it doesn't matter. That's an interesting point. I don't. I didn't have that expectation. I, I never even, I, I've thought about it, but when I think about Blade Runner, I never think of that question. I don't care. Um, it doesn't It doesn't affect, I think for me, what's happening around the character of Deckard is far more interesting than the character of Deckard. Deckard only became interesting to me in those very last moments when he's become soft and he's allowed love to kind of um, illuminate him. So it's interesting to hear different perspectives. Blue, what do you think? What what were your thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I I took it in. I'll tell you what I what I loved about it. Now I had gone with I'll I'll echo Mike's sentiment first. I had gone with my son, and uh, I believe my brother was there as well. I have a brother a few years younger than me, and I have a um, another friend of mine, Mike uh, Rex, who came along. Someone I've known for a few years now. And when we came out, I was a little. Um, like I was blown away. I thought this, wow, this is amazing. And my son liked it because he's into sci-fi and stuff like that. And he he doesn't necessarily need the cookie cutter stuff. He likes the deeper stuff. Um, so that's cool. But then my, I think my my brother was just like a little confused by it. I don't think he really liked it too much. He thought it was okay. And then my friend Mike was a little bit, you know, he's he's a deep dive guy. So he starts asking questions. He's like, I, I didn't like this. I didn't like that. But I think what it came down to after talking to people that first week, because I, I think I went about ten times uh, that first you know two weeks or whatever um the thing that people always said was that it was it's too slow like there wasn't any action but that was the thing that i liked about it like that's that's what that's what kind of kept me in in it because it was when there wasn't any action it was really intense you know when you're look like these close-ups like when he was um when Kay was taking the like making his way to the furnace you know, like that whole sequence, it goes on for quite a while. You know, he's looking around, looking around, and he goes to the furnace, and he's pulling out this little thing. It's really slow. You know, he's not grabbing it and running. You know, it's like he's grabbing it, and he's opening it up. It's real slow. I mean, that was just so intense to me. Like, I don't, I don't know why, but it was. You know, scenes where they do close-ups on him, and he's just kind of, you just see his face just standing there doing nothing <laughs> really just emoting um to me that stuff's all interesting i and and it evokes 
old sci-fi, like where you were saying before, like it's more about the questions than the answers. Um, you read some old Asimov, you read, read some old, like you know, some Bradbury stuff, you know, you get, you get that heady sci-fi thing, the Dick stuff, you know? And, and that's, that's what this reminded me of. It reminded me of a classic sci-fi. It wasn't necessarily beginning, middle, end. It was, it was very open and fluid and you could inject your own, you know, opinions in there and thoughts and come out with different things. So while everybody was saying it was slow, I was saying, well, I don't mind that. I don't need explosions in Michael Bay. You know, I don't, I don't need that. I want to see a movie that's going to make me think. And boy, I mean, I didn't stop thinking about it for, for a long time. And that touches on, that touches on something that uh, Joe talks about in his essay in terms of entertainment versus, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm losing his actual terms, but he was talking about different audiences and audiences that go just to be entertained or audiences that attend, uh, films to think and that Mm -hmm. Blade Runner requires you to think. Um, and I think that, that, um, requirement is tenfold in 2049. And, uh, that, that scene that you're describing in terms of, uh, K and the length of time it takes him to kind of open up, you know, the, the, the horse and everything. I love that scene as well, because we are watching Pinocchio become a real boy. Um, and it's an incredible thing kind of done in silence, except for the the soundtrack. And I I love it too. I love it for those very same reasons. Um, Mm -hmm. so it's, it's good. And all the twists and turns that that take, how it, it, the story flips at that point, but then it flips again. And then you're, you're like, what, you know, it's, it's very, it's just very, uh, just a well put together story. It's just, and it, and it keeps you guessing, even though there's not a lot of action, you're just wondering what's going on. And it took me a couple of views to, to sort of pick up on a lot of those clues, like, like that the, in the orphanage, um, why did the kid have hair? Why did little K in the dream or whatever have have hair when it was really the daughter but why did you know why well that's why because all the boys were had shaved heads if you notice and all the girls had hair but you don't pick up on that right away you right pick, not you pick, not the first time you see it right otherwise. you pick up on that like three views later when you go oh wait a minute yeah well the, because it's a girl she has hair yeah you know it's like it's it, it, just I don't know. Just the way it opens up for you down the road, like all these things just hit you every viewing. Like, and and I, I, I think I, that's. Go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say I, I think that's an essential component of 2019 as well, and I think part of why they work so well together as two sides of a coin is because they're both really set up and structured in a way that reveals itself continually with repeated viewings, which is why we can go back and watch both those movies over and over again. I mean, like embarrassing. I, I saw it in the, I thought I saw 2049 in theaters, I think seven times or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I would have gone, I would have gone more if I could have made it to more viewings of it. Cause I think it just, it just, it's something that is designed to um, unflower, you know, over, over decades of repeated viewings. And we're so lucky. Yeah. Um, I, we, we, so we, we got to wrap, but um, before we do, I just want to remind everybody, the Cyberpunk Nexus is available through Amazon, through Sequart, the publisher. You can find it you know, all over the internet. We'll put a link in the show notes to it. Um, again, it, Lou is the uh, main editor of it. He worked with Joe Bongiorno, um, and the forward is by Paul Salmon, who's been on the show before. There's tons of awesome stuff in there. We've been really enjoying it, and um, I, I personally really recommend people pick it up. Um, you will not regret it. And it is so great to have, um, continuing re-engagements with these movies by such thoughtful fans of the films. 
and giving us more things to talk about and more things to unpack with time. And it fits nicely, I think, with um, the upcoming Blade Runner 2049 and philosophy book that is being co-edited by our very dear friend Robin Bunce, um, which people should be on the lookout for. Um, Abstracts are still being submitted. There's details on our website for that and in a number of other places. But um, my point being that we're living in such a, a wonderful era in science fiction in general, and especially in terms of research and people connecting over the internet to to work together on these projects. And I think the cyberpunk nexus is such a sterling example of what can happen when a bunch of smart, interesting people who love something come together and build something beautiful from the pieces of something that, um, you know, was already beloved. So um, I, I really recommend people pick it up. And I'm so gr- I'm so grateful you could both be on the show tonight. Wow. Thank you so much. Those are some great words there. Wow. High praise. Thank you. Yeah, write, write them down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do mean it. It's it's wonderful stuff. So thank it's, you. Cool. Yes, no, I, thank you so thank much you. for coming on. Thanks, Mike, for uh, your you. your appearance. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Mike. Hey, you're very welcome. And 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 just one last thing before you sign off: stay away from the Jetter novels. <laughs> <laughs> To find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please visit us on our website at www.perfectorganism.com. Shoulder of Orion is available for listen or download through Apple iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. If you'd like to join in the discussion, please join our official Facebook discussion group, Fields of Calantha, a Blade Runner discussion group.